Welcome to Better Together with a Life Worth Living. I'm Barbara Peacock, and our stories teach, inspire, and bind people together. Thanks to Anne and Carl Fama for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. You know what it's like when you go to sleep at night and you look forward to getting up the next morning to see what the new day holds for you? When Ryan Huey was in his late 20s, he went to sleep one night and woke up blind. Ryan and his guide dog, Joe, are in the studio with me. Joe's a three-and-a-half-year-old yellow lab, yellow Labrador retriever. He's kind of the strong, silent type, so he's not likely to speak during this interview. But rest assured, he's right there beside Ryan. And later in our podcast, we're also going to hear from Joe's trainer. Uh, Ryan, by the way, is the program lead for the CNIB here in Windsor for Southwest and North Ontario. Is that right, Ryan? Thanks for having me. Yes, you are correct. Ryan, I want you to take us back to that night. What what happened? So you just, you went to sleep at night? You know what? Everyone always asks that question. It's so anticlimactic, I think. I mean, everyone expects like this big disaster story, but really, I just thought it was a normal night. I was bowling. I drove home. I, I mean, I wore reading glasses and I went to bed, plugged my phone in, got up the next morning, couldn't see my phone. I thought, okay, maybe it's dark in here, maybe it's something else, I'm not sure, but it, I just couldn't see. And I didn't really start to panic until they started mentioning surgery and stuff, and that was a few days later. But near the end, that was a Sunday, near the end of the week, um, Thursday, I was in Toronto having surgery. Now, had you any indication this might happen? Anything that happened before? Not really. Um, I mean, like I wore reading glasses, but I mean, they corrected everything. It was like, oh, I could still read. I could still do everything. I was driving very, very much a, a sighted individual. And I guess all my blood vessels just decided to die one night in my in my eyes. I know that sounds crazy, but I guess they all sort of just stopped getting oxygen, oxygen or deoxygenated, whatever the bad one is. They started getting that and they just sort of collapsed onto my retinas and detached my retinas in both eyes at the same time. Now, I had about, it was about a decade ago, my right retina detached. And over the next several months, I had to go through a whole bunch of procedures, you know, all about that, because you went through way more than I did. But during that time, my mind was like busy with all kinds of what ifs, because you don't know what's going to happen. Did your mind go there? did for a minute or two, but I think, this is going to sound strange, but I think th th it happened the way it should have happened. I think if I was a gradual um, loss of vision, I don't know that I would handle that as well. I'm more of a push me in the water and see if I can swim. And that's exactly what this situation did. I think that it, it really, it, it made me adjust. I'm a baseball player, right? And you get split second timing to, to think, are right, am I going to swing at this curveball or let it go? And that's the way I've kind of lived my life. And I, I think that this vision loss has kind of been like that. Whereas if it was a gradual over weeks, months, years, I don't know I would handle it the same way. I don't know how I would handle that. I, I commend the the others, uh, my work colleagues and, and the other people that we support. I really commend them on, I know it sounds weird, but their gradual loss of vision, yeah. because I feel like that would be much more significant than mine. Yes. Yeah, totally. But what do they say about that, though? What do other people who lost it gradually say about what you're saying? I think they have this a similar reaction. It's just like, oh, I can't believe it happened to you overnight. That's crazy. But I, I, I don't know. I, I think I don't want to say I prefer it that way because I would love to be able to see. But I mm -hmm. think, you know, the preference when push comes to, comes to shove, I think I would rather, okay, push me in the deep end. Now make your adjustments and live kind of thing. 
was there a person who came along or was it entirely just from within you that you got through this? Oh, I wouldn't be where I am without the support system I have. Um, and it, it's still to this day a really good support system. My friends and family, they, they really, really help me out a lot. Um, you know, they do a lot of sighted things for me, you know, give me rides and stuff like that. And they've really helped me kind of adjust and pushed me to be where I am. Growing up with that sports background, it, it really helped out too, because you've always been a part of a team and still to this day, it's going to be lifelong. And I know that I'm going to have to be a part of that team and, and just keep pushing forward, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you lost your sight when, I think you said you were 27 or 28, weren't you? Something like that? Oh, those were the days, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think you're 35 now, although you don't hey, look 35. You're <laughs> giving away all my secrets, the <laughs> podcast. They could picture, yes. you know, Tom Cruise in front of them or somebody, yeah. Well, pretty close, yeah. Just, you're not going to turn the tables on me, though, I can tell you that. <laughs> um, but what I was going to say was, you're at that stage so we take all those hopes and dreams we had in our teens and our early 20s, and then the age you were at, you were turning all of those into, okay, now I'm putting these into place. This is what I'm going to do, I'm, you know. So looking back, you know, who you were before, what you were doing before, and now, how has this changed the course you'd set for yourself? It definitely has changed, but I still think those dreams are there. Like, I think they've just been adjusted a little bit. Um, I, you know, I still want to be successful. You still want to have the family. You still want to do this and do that. And you can still do those things. It's just, you might have to accomplish them in a different way. Um, take for instance, if you and I are getting to the mall, we want to go to the mall. You might drive. I'm walking. We still get to the mall. It's just, we do it differently. Right. I think you just sort of change your approach a little bit. I don't think you're, you necessarily have to change your dreams unless my dream is to be a pilot. Then, you know, we're probably talking <laughs> a, a little bit of a change. But I think, you know, yeah. th those dreams are still there. You just really have to look hard at how you're going to get there. And I was a big person. I was focused on solution or not on solutions on the, the end. You know, it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. But now it's like, well, how am I going to get there? And I think that's where my my approach sort of changed for something like this. I remember uh, you're just making me think of something. This was from like 40, 45 years ago when I was early in my broadcast career. And I remember talking to this fellow. He was a farmer and he lost his sight. And like, as you said, it was quite a sudden thing. And he had been a downhill skier and everything. And he downhill skied with his buddy. And I remember at the time thinking, I like, I just can't imagine that. So you said you were a baseball player. Are you a baseball player now? I haven't been, uh, but I would like to be. I mean, there's the beeper baseball. There's all yep. kinds of uh, adaptive sports that you can play. So it's like the journey, if you're an athlete and you, you happen to lose your sight or, you know, have something horrible happen to you, I, I don't think that the journey's over. You can still do the athlete thing. It's just, again, you have to change it. Um, I've learned to love running. I run every day and uh, I run with a guide runner and it's really strange the way you explain it, but it's like you and I are running. We would tie our waist together with like a three foot rope between us and we just run and you kind of make sure I don't run into anything and I kind of just follow along. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of uh, something that I like to do now. It, uh, it's it's simple. Uh, the adaptation is four dollars, you know, maximum, and it's just you know you can go. There's a lot of different sports that that people who uh, live with a vision impairment do play, and there's even you know the, the downhill skiing. There's like Paralympic skiers, and there's all kinds of crazy things that I don't even know that I would have the skills to do. Uh, there's blind hockey. I'm getting into that too. It, it's kind of cool some of the things that they they have going on. So there's a whole world out there. So are you thinking you're going to get into other sports? 
my my mind says yes, but my 35-year-old <laughs> body says, eh, maybe you should rethink this. Okay, well, Ryan, I'm twice as old as you are, so... And running that whole concept is making my knees hurt. I'd like to thank our sponsors for today's podcast, Anne and Carl Fama. You're listening to Better Together with a Life Worth Living. And our other guest is Rob Kramer, who is a guide dog mobility instructor with the CNIB. And he worked with Ryan and with his dog, Joe. And thanks for for being on the line with us, Rob. Hi. Thanks for having me, Barb. Hello. Um, When I say you're a guide dog mobility instructor, what does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a bit of a specialized role. So part of the role involves training the dogs, teaching them the skills required um, to keep someone safe and act as a guide dog. And the other half of the role is matching a dog to an individual and then training that team together. So with the dog end of things, what sets a potential guide dog apart from a pet? There's a whole process that goes into it. Um, From the breeding, we use a specialized breeder. So the dogs come from lines that have been selected uh, for their for their temperamental traits and their health as well. And then they're placed in volunteer puppy raising homes. So those volunteers do a massive, massive job for us. They, they work with staff members who are puppy raising supervisors, and they, they focus on socializing those pups, getting them to behave well in the home, working on basic obedience, and taking them anywhere where a person might go. So on public transport, um, in cities, all through neighborhoods, dealing with distractions. So they're just setting that dog up for success. Once they reach approximately 15 months of age, they enter what we call formal training. So they're matched with a guide dog trainer who's going to then actually teach them to be a guide dog. So they're teaching them the skills to stop at curbs, avoid obstacles, respond to speed control, and generally keep someone safe. When they get to that point is when we start to play matchmaker. Mm. I want to ask you about that in a minute, but when they get to that, let's say, 15-month-old stage, is that when you know whether they're suited for this or maybe they're suited to be a pet? We're constantly assessing dogs. Uh, Some dogs might tell us at a very young age that it's not a career that's suited for them. Uh, We don't want to force dogs into it uh, if the dog's not uh, suited for it. Um, We'll find an alternative career path. We have a buddy dog program where we match dogs with children with sight loss. Um, And that's just preparing them for future future guide dog mobility, potentially. Uh, We also have ambassador dogs who do public relations and fundraising for us. So we look at it, it, that might be a young age um, or sometimes through training. So we're we're constantly assessing whether it is the right job for them. And and that could be at six months. um, Or sometimes we may see that they struggle with pressure later on in the training program. Uh, Because towards the end of training, we're doing more intensive work. We're asking more of the dog. They have to make a lot of decisions. And and some dogs may struggle with the responsibility, essentially. Now, Rob and Ryan, I happen to know that people get confused about service dogs or guide dogs versus therapy dogs because my... um, I've had three dogs who were therapy dogs with St. John Ambulance. Now, they didn't have to have any special training. 
they simply had a friendly nature that qualified them to visit elderly um, residents and care. But guide dogs are a whole other level from that. Explain that. And I, I think people get confused when they see a dog in a harness. Yeah, for sure. So there's a variety of different types of service dogs that will have public access. Um, and those dogs need to be uh, trained by an organization, uh, typically anyways. Um, but they need to have skills trained that are actually helping someone with a condition. Whereas a therapy dog might act uh, as a support that could go into facilities where they're welcomed, um, but they're not actually performing tasks uh, medical tasks, essentially. Yeah. Now, I think, and Ryan, I'm sure you get asked, and, and Rob would see this all the time, you get asked the opposite of what those of us who have therapy dogs, I would go into long-term care, and somebody would be in the elevator, and they'd say, oh, I wish I could pet your dog. And I'm like, well, that's what she's here for. She's here to, so you can, anybody can pet her. The staff used to love petting her. But you are the opposite. You have to make sure they don't do that. True. Absolutely. And uh, it's, it's one of the hardest things because I'm, I'm a dog lover myself. And um, most people that ask are dog lovers and they're like, I just want to pet him. And you know what, when he's working, you don't touch him, just pretend like he's my cane. You wouldn't want to pet my red and white mobility cane. So just, you know, act like he's not even there or he's a cane. Um, but I think he he works hard, he rests hard, he plays hard, but when um, he, he deserves coffee breaks, like we just had one out front where mm-hmm. you guys got to pet him, I, I like to call his little five minutes, okay, sure, as long as the people are okay with me taking off his vest because he doesn't, he's not a guide dog when he's not in vest, right? Um, think of it like police officer, a police officer is a police officer when he's in uniform, but when he's out of uniform, he's just a civilian. Uh, and that's the same with Joe. So when I take off his vest, he, his demeanor changes and you can pet him, rub his belly. He'll he'll play with you, bring you toys, throw the ball, go get it. He's uh, just a, a normal everyday pet. He's just really well trained. Uh, and I'm glad I wore dark pants today because I have nice golden lab hair on, my, on there now. So I'll take that home with me. Uh, Rob, what told you that Ryan and Joe would be a good match? Um, it, it's not a precise science, but... It kind of breaks down into a few components. I was looking at some practical elements. Ryan and Joe both had a similar walking speed. That's one of the most important things that we consider is that beads are, you know, pretty close to each other. Um, And then I looked at what Ryan needed, and he does a fair bit of travel with his job. So he needed a dog that was able to adapt to any environment um, and just confidently work without necessarily having familiarity in environments. And that's sort of Joe. He's sort of a takes it easy, um, doesn't really get rattled by any sort of changes. He, um, as long as he's with Ryan, he's he's good. He's happy. Um, so that was a big part of it. I just want to I want to back up for one second there, Rob. Um, Ryan, what does it mean that you and Joe have the same walking speed? It's funny. I was I wanted to touch base with that because it's it's uh, so I'll, I'll just say it. Rob has trained a lot of teams, and he said we were, if not the slowest, one of the slowest <laughs> ever. So we I I walk, I'm very cautious when I walk. Um, even, uh, I when I'm not with Joe and I was using my cane, I'd do the zombie walk, arms out in front, so I'm not running into things. And it was a big adjustment to kind of switch off because you lose that tactile from the cane when you when you go to Joe and Joe is a 
we kind of stop and smell the roses. He saunters more than he's, you know, running. And, and if I would have got a, a quick guide dog, I would have been frightened. Right. And then the quick guide dog would have eventually got bored. Like, Oh, this guy's so slow. So you have to kind of really look at the walking speed. And, um, I'm really glad I, I, I like to tell people that Joe is the dog version of me. We're so similar that we just, you know, stop and smell the roses, take, takes one step at a time and then go for it. Right. I think you're, uh, you're cruisers. You're almost the Cadillac of guide dog teams is what I would say. I'll take it. <laughs> now, which one was the better student, Rob? <laughs> Careful. They were both a pleasure to work with. Oh boy. We'll get you a job in the diplomatic service here. <laughs> you, you get to watch as the person and the dog meet and they learn to work together. What are your feelings, Rob, as you're watching them? To be honest, in the initial moment when I bring someone a dog, I feel almost like an intruder. I feel like it's very humbling to be there for that moment, but it almost feels like being the third wheel on a date. I try and remove myself as quick as I can so they can have that special moment because it's really the beginning of a long and beautiful working relationship. So I want to give people the space. But then seeing the the first moments and seeing the team progress day to day really fills me with pride. Um, And I I often reflect back to how many people contributed to that result. Um, I often say it takes a village to raise a guide dog. I mentioned puppy raisers before, but we have admin staff. We have people in our uh, canine campus that are looking after the dog's health and welfare. Uh, we have veterinary staff. So there's there's a lot of people that, that go into reaching that result. And uh, I'm just honored that I get to witness it. I feel like I should go back and ask you how you know what it's like to be a third wheel on a, on a date. <laughs> <laughs> but that's probably a different podcast. So we'll carry on here. Uh, you're listening to Better Together with a Life Worth Living. I'm speaking with Rob Kramer, who trained guide dog Joe, who's sitting right beside me, uh, who's in the studio with his human, Ryan Huey. Uh, Ryan lost his sight in his late 20s, now in his mid-30s. He was matched with Joe almost a year ago? Just over. Just over uh, a year ago. November 20th, or November 16th, excuse me, 2020. November of 2020. Our sponsors for this podcast are Windsor's own Anne and Carl Fama. Now, Rob and Ryan, as both of you know, some dogs are handsome and powerful, like Joe. Some are cute, also Joe. Uh, But to me, the best things about dogs are not things we can see with our eyes. Would you agree with that? Yes. You know what? Joe gets noticed everywhere he goes. And I think it, you know, it's partially because, hey, look at the dog in the grocery store, like how many times do you actually see that, right? And I, I really think that it's funny because people actually know his name in my building, but they don't know my name. They're like, oh, look, there's Joe, right? And it's like, oh, there's Abby, my daughter. Like they know Joe and Abby, but they're like, oh, there's that guy that's with them, right? And I think, yeah, Joe has a lot of qualities and I can always tell when he's there. Um, sometimes it's really funny. He's got this innocent kind of, I don't even know how to call it, but like he, I don't know if he knows why he's matched with me sometimes. Like when he's out of harness, so he'll be standing in the middle of the hallway and he'll expect me to walk around him. It's like, hey, I can't see you. Like you should be moving out of my way kind of thing. So I think, I don't know that he realizes, you know, sometimes I'm like, does he know why he's here? But then as soon as it's work time, he's like, yep, let's go. He loves to work. And that's what, um, 
really the, the innocence of him. And as he grows older and, and gets to be with me and Abby, I, I know he's already been a, a welcomed addition and a loved addition to the family for sure. But it can only get better from here. Rob, what springs to your mind when I said that about, you know, that the best things about dogs are things you can't see? Um, I think it's really accurate because what I love most, I think, about dogs is they're really intuitive. And I think they're experts at reading and responding to our body language. We've been living together for thousands of years, humans and dogs, and we're we're getting slowly better at reading their body language and reading what they're trying to tell us. But I think they're so far ahead of us in reading reading our body language and, and responding to it in a way that, that really helps them to become guide dogs because that connection, Joe will be looking to Ryan and seeing what he needs while he's in harness and learning and I'm hoping that he learns he learns to respond to Ryan walking through his apartment as well <laughs> and to learn to get out of the way um, that that may come in time and it's it's interesting Ryan brought up whether he realizes what he's doing and why he's doing it and I think that's something that often comes with time for a guide dog team and for the dog I think when we we train a dog we train them the behaviors that are required to become a guide dog but once they're matched with their handlers, I think they truly learn to be guide dogs and learn what's needed for that individual person. And it's a process that can take at least a year for that relationship to really form and for the dog to kind of understand exactly what's needed and um, modify their behavior to suit that. What do people who have a guide dog tell you, Rob, about what that dog and that partnership has meant to their life? It's uh, it's really special. Everyone talks about the special connection and it's something I hear about, but I can never truly experience because having a guide dog is so much different than a pet. I'm sure Ryan would talk to you about all the places he takes Joe. Joe is his constant companion. I've I have pet dogs myself. I know a lot of people with pets, but I don't know many people that are able to live that kind of life with their dogs. So it's it's a really special partnership that I couldn't fully understand. Although people talk to me about the the connection and the trust is a big thing. You know, the ability to trust a dog with your safety, yeah, I think just adds to the relationship. Hmm. Ryan? Those are the two big words, uh, independence and trust. Uh, I get to go everywhere with my buddy. I'm never alone. Um, you know what? And like, you, you know, Joe learns about me. I'm learning about him. And you know what? We, we're a team. And that's the, the best word to describe it because we, we just, we take care of each other. He might need a little more taken care of than me sometimes. And then other times I might need a little more taken care of than him, you know, but uh, we, we, we go through it. We're, we're there thick and thin, rain or snow, dark or light. We're, you know, out there walking. He's, uh, He's, he's my car, right? And he's my buddy. And we, we go around and I love all the places we get to go. I mean, if me, him and Abby could go everywhere together, I, I would love for that. And uh, it, it's really, it's a really special thing. You know, you, you get noticed like a lot, like there's a lot of attention placed on you and the dog because you, you, he's probably the only dog in Walmart kind of mm-hmm. thing, right? But it, it's it's just really cool because it's it, it gives you a whole different perspective on traveling. Um, it's it's made me not be, not that I was ever scared, but it's made me less frightened or less timid to travel um, just because, you know, you got him and, and he can do 
some really great things. And that goes back to almost like our first day of training. I think I know, or Rob probably knows what story I'm going to tell. It was, we were walking in downtown London and there was a bunch of chicken bones on the ground and he didn't even look at them. He just walked right by him and I'm like, I think you broke my dog. Like, shouldn't he be trying to eat those? And then I realized, no, that's a good thing. He he shouldn't be looking at them. And you know what? That day one of training, you get that trust and okay, let's do this. We're, wow. we're going now. We usually try and set people up uh, for a nice, easy first walk. Wow. But uh, I couldn't believe we crossed the street and I could see the chicken bones. <laughs> wow, that is impressive. Ryan, you mentioned Abby. Your daughter is two, right? She is, yeah. yes. Now, when she gets older, though, because I, th- this is one of the things, you know, the rest of us are, are sort of like, okay, guide dog, I know I'm not supposed to, he's got his harness on, I shouldn't pet him. But other than that, a lot of us don't know what else we should or shouldn't do. When Abby gets older, would she be able to travel with you when you have Joe with you? Oh, absolutely. So the reason I would, I'm a little hesitant now to travel with her is because she's so young. She doesn't know the difference between invest, don't touch him, and out of vest, he's my friend. She just sees Joe and it's automatically, there's my friend. I want to pet him. I want to hug him, right? They're, they're best buddies. They get along so great. Um, it's a perfect match for her. I'm so glad that she gets to grow up alongside him. That their, their bond is just going to get stronger and stronger. And I think it kind of speaks to inclusivity and um, diversity because she's going to be comfortable around guide dogs and she's going to be able to teach all of her friends when she's in school. And I think that's really great because I think she can be kind of like a trailblazer in in her class. And, you know, hey, my dad gets to bring his dog everywhere kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's it's really a great story. They fight over each other's toys. She wants to play with the guide dog toy. He he wants to play with her toys. yeah, she she just they get along very very well together. I just don't think Joe realized how much bigger he is than her because uh, he's probably got fifty pounds on her. So yeah. <laughs> what are the things the rest of us don't know about being around someone who has lost their vision? We're just people, and we just want to be interacted with. That's pretty much the big thing. Um, you know what? Just just say hello. That that's all you got to do, right? Start the conversation and. Um, I, I don't I don't speak for the whole blindness community, but I mean, don't adjust your language, right? Like if you're like, hey, did you see the game last night? Like, don't get all weird about it. Just that's just the way the English language goes. And, you know, we just love that you're talking to us. Like there's not really any secret to it. I think it's just talk to us like you talk to your friends or your family. And and that that's that's it. Right. Kind of thing. Rob. Yeah. And I think uh, often people are very helpful and want to help out if they see someone who might be having some difficulty difficulty or it might look like they're having some difficulty and uh, some people with the best of intentions might step in and try and I've had seen people grab someone's arm and try and help them and um, swoop them to safety but that can be quite alarming for one um, potentially insulting as well so I think the big thing if you want to help someone first ask if they would like help and if they if they say yes then ask how you could help because everyone's gonna want help in a in a different way Hmm. And that, I think that would work not just for someone who's blind, that would work in lots of different situations, wouldn't it? I think as a general rule for life, um, just not assuming you know the answer to how someone needs help or um, just that, just asking what you can do for them if they want the help. Ryan, you mentioned when you take the harness off uh, that Joe is not working, then he knows when you take it off, he's not working anymore. What are his favorite things to do? 
He's all about comfort. That's for sure. He loves to stretch out on his bed or he takes up the whole floor. Um, he really likes that. And he's got a couple of favorite toys. Um, that's for sure. And if, you know, Ryan's on a Zoom call or a work phone call, he really likes to grab the really noisy toy and play with it as loud as he can because he knows I'm not paying attention to him. So he's uh, he's got that personality. And that's the one big myth, I think, uh, I thought, you know, when getting a guide dog, I was getting... Well, essentially a robot dog, no personality. She's just going to do whatever I, whatever I say and, and listen, but he's got that personality. There's some days where he doesn't really want to work. He just wants to hang out or there's, Hey, let's do this. Or no, I think you want me to go here. And he remembers like, we've done this five times. I think this is where you want to go, but no, not today, Joe. I don't want to go there today. So there's, he, he just, he just loves life and he's got that, you know, innocence about him where he just goes through life and the, the the littlest things you know mean so much to well dogs in general, but especially to Joe. It just kind of reminded me when you asked about the matching process. The personality is the other big part of it. So when I met Ryan, I could see he was clearly a dog person and also a person with a great sense of humor, who savored life. So I wanted to give him that dog that had the personality that was going to be a bit playful and make you smile so it's almost as important sometimes as their walking speed or as their guide work um having you know 95 percent of the time joe's going to be off the job so it's important that that relationship is there and that bond is formed so we do look at individual preferences Mm. what someone might like in a dog so ryan quite likes that affectionate playful humorous side of joe but some of our handlers may may want a dog that's a bit more aloof, less engaged, less needy. Um, so we try and we try and match for the practical components, but then the personality side as well matters a lot. Yeah, some dogs are very serious, aren't they? Which, which, yep, which sounds exactly. weird, but they are, and they just like to stick to their job. I always tell people, if you believe in reincarnation, I want to come back as a guide dog. I mean, what other job can you work for half an hour and then you nap for seven? Like that's, that's an amazing job. Sign me up. Sure. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, listen, I've been sitting here for this whole time wanting to say, who's a good boy? But I don't say that, you see. So I'm holding that till we're all done. But he has been really good. He's just like flaked out on the floor there, but paying attention. Well, and that's the thing, right? So even if we're in a restaurant, the people are like, oh my God, he's not working. He's just under the de- under the table. But no, he's still got to be on alert. He's got to not be licking the bottom of the table or scrounging for scraps or, you know, doing this. So it's like, even though he's just laying there, he's still working right now. Rob, so we talked about what ordinary people can do when they're around the guide dog. But I also wondered about fundraising and about paying for all of this as well. What are you finding with that? Yeah, it's a great question. All of our, all the money to pay for the guide dog program comes from donations and sponsors. We don't have any government funding for guide dogs. So it just depends on the generosity of the public. We've also had a huge increase in demand for guide dogs since COVID started. Really? Why would that be? So a lot of people previously have gone to the States to get a guide dog. So when the border shut, that changed people's options. So there's a few guide dog schools in Canada, but we haven't, we hadn't been set up previously to, to meet that demand because 
a portion of the people are getting their dogs from the states. So our demand actually went up 375% after COVID. Wow. So we're working really hard to build our team, hire staff, build capacity for dogs at our canine campus, and trying to meet that need to reduce the waiting times for applicants on our waiting list. Um, so, yeah, we, we definitely need people to contribute, even if it's just a few dollars, um, just, just to help out so we can so we can get dogs like Joe to people like Ryan. How would people do that? Uh, the best place to start is a website, which is sponsorpuppies.ca. Rob and Ryan, thank you both for, for talking to me today. This was just great talking to you. Lots of fun. Well, thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you so much. And Joe sends his regards as well from <laughs> under the table. <laughs> Ryan Huey is the program lead for Come to Work with the CNIB in Ontario West and North. Rob Kramer is a guide dog mobility instructor with the CNIB. He worked with Ryan and with his dog Joe. And that site again where you can donate is sponsorpuppies.ca. Also, thanks to our sponsors today, Anne and Carl Fama, for kindly sponsoring this episode. My name is Barbara Peacock. You've been listening to Better Together with a Life Worth Living. Know who you are, decide where you will go, and choose a life worth living. 